Hi, this is Paul. Um, a lot of fun comments on the Andrew Tate Simulacra of Faith, Replica of Love and Search for Genuine Article video that I did this week. Some of you might know uh, Drew Psychology on Twitter. He's He's been on the channel before. He, he's a, a regular conversation partner on Twitter. And over the la last week, he was feeding a bunch of my video titles into ChatGPT and asking it to write some raps and all kinds of other things. And this was this was <laughs> this was what he he DM'd me. Paul, I'll stop um, spamming your timeline with chat GPT stuff, but this one I needed to send you. I saw your tweet promo from your upcoming AI video, so I decided to go a little meta and play around with your video title and chat GPT. I'm realizing that the program remembers my previous chat history and will bring in themes and previous prompts, chats which is probably why the program allows you to have multiple different chats rather than just a single continuous one. Anyway, the first thing I asked it to do was to write a position paper based on the video title, and it wrote something up. Then I asked, and he shared that one on, on Twitter, and I didn't think it really fit real well. Then I asked what, um, what you think of Paul Vanderclay would say in that video, and the response was the one I sent you on Twitter. After a few more iterations, I decided to branch out and see what it would say to the, in the style of a soliloquy from a play or um, an ancient Greek theatrical scene, and finally a scene from a movie. And this is the movie scene it wrote. Fade in. Um, interior coffee shop, day. You see a young man, Andrew, sitting at a table, typing on his laptop. He's surrounded by empty coffee cups and empty, drink can empty energy drink cans. He's engrossed in his work, muttering to himself and occasionally typing furiously. Suddenly, he stops and looks up as if seeing something in the distance. He closes his laptop and stands up. Andrew, to himself, I need to find the genuine article. He walks out of the coffee, sh coffee shop determined. Exterior street scene, day. Andrew walks down the busy street, his eyes fixed on a distant point. People bustle past him, but he's in his own world. Suddenly, he stops in front of a large building with a sign that reads, Replica, the AI friend that's always been there. He takes a deep breath and enters. Interior replica office, day. Andrew is greeted by a smiling receptionist. Receptionist, hello, how can I help you today? Andrew, I need to see Replica. I need to know if it's real. The receptionist looks confused and nods and leads Andrew to a conference room. Interior conference room, day. Andrew is speaking in front of a large screen displaying the Replica logo. Remember, this is all written by ChatGPT. <laughs> it's astounding. A voice speaks from a speaker. Hello, Andrew, how can I help you today? Andrew, excited. Replica, I've heard so much about you. I need to know if you're real. Replica, of course I'm real. I'm an artificial intelligence designed to provide companionship and support. Andrew, disappointed. That's not what I mean. I'm looking for something genuine, something real, something that's not just a simulation. Replica, I understand, Andrew, but can I provide you with real emotional support and understand, but I can provide you with real emotional support and understanding. Andrew looks down, lost in thought. Andrew, whispering, maybe that's what I need. Maybe that's all there is. Suddenly, the door opens and a man enters the room. It's Paul Vanderclay. Well, I guess they got the gender right. Paul, Andrew, what are you doing here? Andrew, I'm in the replica office, apparently. Andrew, surprised. Paul, what are you doing here? <laughs> Paul, I heard you were here and I wanted to talk to you. I have to save Andrew from replica. Andrew looks up, hope in his eyes. Andrew, Paul, I need to know if there's anything real in this world. Is there anything genuine? 
Paul smiling. Of course there is, Andrew. There's faith. There's love. There's a God who created us and loves us. Andrew's eyes light up. Andrew excited. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. Paul smiling. Then come with me, Andrew. Let me show you the genuine article. Andrew stands up smiling. He follows Paul out of the room, leaving replica behind. Fade out. He... Andrew could have just asked Replica to write the script for a Christian movie because uh, this this is kind of what they're all like. A nice, clean narrative with, with easy answers and solutions that, that solve everything. Now, Chad on his Friday morning name list dropped a, dropped a video and... I'll, I'll, it's, it's not a very long video, but I'll, I'll jump in. Well, maybe we'll just play it. Greetings and welcome to the Friday Morning Nameless. I'm Chad the Alcoholic. And do I have some good news for you today? I recently was perusing the obituaries and I tripped over this one. And I went from a non-believer to a believer in a matter of seconds when I read it. I, I want to thank the the man that wrote this. Um, it was possibly the most insightful and impactful moment of my life when I obituary. Andrew, age 44, of Undisclosed Town. Different Andrew, by the way. Died January of 2023. Probably from drugs unknowingly laced with fentanyl. Very informative. Thank you for, thank you for giving me all of that information about your brother. Now, Chad earlier says that he's he's not giving away any personal information from this obituary. He's changed all the names. He's removed all the references. So, brother, I appreciate that. He was born in Milwaukee in March of 1978 to his unnamed parents, and he is survived by his longtime and unnamed girlfriend. His mother, <clears throat> his brother, and his nephews. He was preceded in death by his father. Andrew graduated from high school in 1996 and went on to attend a university in Wisconsin. He was the owner-operator of an online fireworks shop. And he also worked in another industry, winning the all-time high salesman and manager in 2018. And from 2021 to present day, Andy sold sheds that the Amish built for him, and he enjoyed fishing and hiking as well. A memorial service will be held at so-and-so and on so-and-so at this time and date, yada, yada. Okay, so here's where it gets very interesting, and my life will forever be changed. After reading this, I had, I had the sense that I was hit by a stroke of lightning, otherwise known as having a moment of metanoia, a revelation of sorts. Uh, because of this next line, I suddenly went from a non-believer to a fully enthralled and professing child, child and believer in Jesus. How did this man know? How did he know that when he would write his brother's obituary, the words that he would that the words that he would have would transform pagans and heathens across the globe, and the good news he brings to us would be so powerful that all reading it, all that would all who would read it 
would have no other choice but to fall to their knees, only to pound their chest and beg for forgiveness. What a genius. So here's what uh, the beloved Andy's brother writes in the next line of his brother's obituary. While our hearts are heavy that Andy didn't become a Christian, it's not too late for you. Did you hear that? <laughs> Praise God. Amen, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then <clears throat> Andy's brother puts in a link to it. In his brother's obituary, he puts a link to a website of his ministry. Isn't that something? I mean, it's unbelievably beautiful. Linking my... Now, now, Chad, obviously, um, this, this, this touched off something in Chad. And, and some of you listening to this are probably a little offended by Chad because he seems to be dismissing something that you hold dear. Uh, dismissing something sacred, dismissing something that is important to you. And I know many people who would read an obituary like this and very much endorse it and very much, um, very much endorse Andrew's brother's decision to um, put his link in there and to, and to say exactly like Andrew did, because I've known many people that 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 is exactly their 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 first instinct they they sort of tell it straight and they sincerely hope and believe that this will bring um people into the kingdom and provoke that metanoia that chad is is sort of coughing on now it's helpful for not all of you know Chad. Chad is a has a regular fixture here in this little corner. Uh, he wears a lucha libre mask because he's Chad the alcoholic. Chad attends church. Um, uh, Ch Chad goes to church. He's a member of a church. It's a good church. Chad is a good guy. Um, Chad has became a Christian because of his experience um, as a recovering alcoholic. All of that stuff. So I, and I also know people who, you meet people who became Christians in just such a way, in just such a straightforward way. So my goal isn't to, isn't to dismiss or condescend in a negative way against anybody in a narrative like this. But I want to point out what Chad and many who have deconstructed and many who don't believe and many who are skeptical, that they're, they're tripping on exactly what Chad is pointing out here. And that is this chat GPT-like super clean narrative. I woke up early this morning and after a little bit, I opened up the computer and looked to Twitter and this Justin Murphy tweet came up, which was, which was very interesting to me. Um, what happened to book publishing? Because he notes um, everything is fucked. Calm the fuck down. Fuck feelings. Zen the fuck. Stop doing that shit. Uh, fuck yourself. How to stop feeling like shit. Um, get your shit together. The subtle art of not giving a fuck. You are a badass. And his question is obviously um, this kind of language, and, and it's sort of implied by the fact that 
nobody's really putting F-U-C-K in the title. Uh, F asterisk C-K or S-H asterisk T. But of course, everybody understands that any adult walking through the bookstore, and maybe that's a blessing to uh, parents with children going through the bookstore, but any adult going through the bookstore is going to quite easily fill the you in yourself. And he just notes that 50 years ago, such a thing would have caused outrage. Why the change? And I thought about that a minute. And so then I decided to retweet this. And I wrote, people in their quest for authenticity embrace the crude. Now, Nate had some, uh, Nate continued to talk with me about that. Um, Dr. Jordan B. Cooper noted authenticity is overrated, and my request and my response to him was the quest for authenticity is a result of the ubiquity of disorienting simulacra. And that's again from the AI video. Simulacra isn't like a diminishing fidelity copy of a copy of a copy. It's a phenomenon of taking the essential aspects of a phenomena and amplifying the features that generate an impulse response and the acculturation of the subject to the stimuli. So when you look at this nice, clean, little Christian movie that ChatGPT wrote, even though it didn't tell him to write a Christian movie, it did. Yeah, nice, clean show. Andrew goes into, into Replica, and I'm going to suddenly be there and save him. It's like, how many bad scripts, or even how many not quite so bad scripts. And I think this is a lot of what we're going to see from AI. And, and I think this is actually part of the reason why people are, people are looking for authenticity and a marker of authenticity is often profanity. And that isn't, that obviously far predates chat GPT or artificial intelligence or machine learning or anything like this. This has been with us for a while. And I think it's a reaction to a lot of the discussion and conversation that emerged in the 50s and 60s, really at the advent of the television era, as the radio era really sort of reached its full maturity that the, that the the commercialized, the commercialized and arenic landscape that we had presented to us from television, um, from magazines, from proper society, that that was itself a simulacra, that that itself was plastic. You can read Jar, uh, George Marsden's The uh, Twilight of the American Enlightenment. In, in the 1950s, there's this, great, there's this great anxiety about the company man. Today, people would give their eye teeth for the kind of financial security and job security that were far more commonplace in the 1950s. But there was, there was all of this anxiety about the plastic individual and the plastic man and the corporate man. And so this ethos of self-expression and stylized rebellion really came into the culture. I, I finished watching the Jordan Peterson, Louise Perry 
conversation. Jordan did a little too much talking in that conversation. But Jordan had a lot of very good things to say in it. And Luis had some very good things to say. And again, some of the best parts were in the Daily Wire extended version. And that's where Luis actually got into Tom Holland. And it was very interesting, um, this little event after the Tom Holland event in the UK. Um, they, they, in fact, got to meet. And I felt like an idiot because I didn't have either of their books for them to sign. I should have had that when I was there. Just a, just a newbie at meeting authors. But so she was, you know, Tom Holland's work is very much processing this rather post-progressive element in the culture that is looking back at things and trying to re-estimate how we figure this out. But there's this, there's this almost pro forma rebel that is that is sort of at the center of our culture and how that gets expressed then would be crude or profane language being used in public society. And, and I think this, in fact, is sort of an, a way to try to regain an authenticity, a way to escape the kind of clean plastic narratives that, that, that we look at and think that isn't real. Now, it is real that even this little obituary that Chad wrote, you will find people that become Christians through that process. I know you will because I find them regularly. It's usually a minority. Most everything is, I made a video a number of months ago when I talked about grime lines, when I talked about Matthew McConaughey, his conversation with Jordan Peterson. So most of us have a sense of that None of our narratives are anywhere near as neat and clean as that little movie written by Chat GPT. But and, and that's why we're sort of working on this at a very deep level culturally. Now, of course, AI is in the news all of a sudden, and Scott Adams had some things to say about it, which I thought were were interesting and, and we'll talk about them because he tweeted about it and there were some interesting responses to his tweet too. How many of you are bored at uh, CGI movies because they all start looking the same? Do you remember that when you saw Star Wars for the first time, if you're old enough to have remembered that, when Star Wars was brand new, the very first one, it was just mind-boggling. You know, we, your, your eyes never shut. You're like, oh, how'd they do that? And, the and, and he's right. I was, I was the perfect age to watch Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. I remember going to the theater to see these things. I remember all of my friends seeing these things. And we were just dumbfounded. And, of course, Star Wars came out. And then the first television, Battlestar Galactica, came out. And that was really cool because it was like Star Wars on TV. You know, we didn't have even have VHS at that point, but yeah, and and even Star Wars wasn't really CGI. Star Wars was models, as was, of course, the the original Lord of the Rings movies. It got better and better until you know it was Iron Man and all the Marvel stuff, and the first Iron Man was pretty amazing. First, you know, the first 
uh, Superman movies. Pretty good. Pretty good. But now if I watch a superhero movie, I watched uh, Black Adam recently. Uh, watching it, I think, is an exaggeration. I sort of had it on while I was doing something else. And it was unwatchable. The CGI was, I guess, amazing. But it, it started to look like every other movie. All right, there's a guy in a tight costume, and he put his hand out, and some stuff came from his hand and made that thing blow up again. Right? So I, can't, I don't even watch when I... You know, if I try to watch an action movie, I fast-forward through the CGI. Do you do that? I fast-forward through all the action. And, and very much so. It's, Adam's just talking about something very real here. This is just boring. It looks like every other movie I've seen. And then I get to the maybe a dialogue. But if it's a dialogue where it's two characters who are trying to act romantically interested, fast-forward. In other words, he's got a sense for plot. And what we're dealing with is, okay, the genuine article. We're dealing with, does it have some grunt and some, some grit and some grime in it? And now this is difficult because part of the reason narratives got so clean in Hollywood be, was because they had to fit into a specific container. You either had to have a half-hour show or an hour show. Now, of course, with... Uh, the advent of streaming, we have these long extended stories that go far beyond even long movie containers. But Because there's nothing worse than the movie trying to convince you that the two people love each other so that you'll feel extra bad when one of them dies. <laughs> and of course, Scott has his own history with, uh, with romantic love and he shared his views on that quite a bit. So we you know, might know why he uh, wants to fast forward through that part or is in danger. And I think, no, I don't want to feel extra bad. I don't, I don't want to be invested in that character. Fast forward. Let's just see the funny jokes. And then I'll go to the dialogue where the, you know, the, the hero is just saying clever retorts. And I'll go, and, and of course, I mean, all of our evaluative tools reflect as much about us as they do anything else. And so if you watch Scott Adams regularly, you'll know he's looking for the little witty retorts. Oh, that was good. Clever retort. I could watch that. But here's where this is all going. It's not about movies. Um, as you know, AI can make art, and it can do it instantly. And in my opinion, it's already way better than humans. Not even close, in my opinion. Now, remember... Now, of course, you'd have to figure out what way better means, but point taken. I'm an artist. Sort of. Sort of. I'm kind of... Kind of almost an artist, cartoonist. That counts a little bit, a little bit. And in my opinion, uh, AI art is already better. He can certainly draw better than I can. The human art by far. Uh, and here's what's going to happen. It's going to go the way of CGI. When I, when I looked at examples of AI art, the first time I saw it, I was like, whoa, just like I did the first time I saw CGI. And just like I did, it's like, wow, you can... So I've been playing around with chat GPT myself a little bit. And sometimes, yeah, it's a far superior search engine in many requests because I can... It does pretty well when I ask it questions about specific things a lot better than 
I remember when first, when Google sort of first, of course, there was AltaVista before Google and there was Yahoo. Yahoo was not really a search engine. Yahoo was sort of an archive. There's been an evolution of search engines, but I began to notice that, again, for me, when I would use Google, I would sort of have to pre-chew my questions. I would have to sort of, you, you, Google, Google trained me to talk to it in a certain way and... I, I often note, too, that, let's say, people older than myself who haven't used computers as often would struggle with Google. I'd, I'd watch them try to search something, and just in the back, I just keep my mouth shut because you learn as a pastor, you just keep your mouth shut because saying anything isn't going to help, so you just quietly watch. Like if I, when my father was still alive, if I'd watch him search something, I'd just sit there and just, just think I wouldn't search it that way. But, you know, and then I watch him stumble through and, well, he was still in the process of Google training him. But after I've used Google enough, um, Google had trained me how to type the kinds of questions for it that I knew I would get the kinds of responses from it. And what's amazing about ChatGPT is that it's already starting to train me because I'm learning how to interact with it to get more of the responses I'm looking for. But... His, so I'm amazed at, that it could write this movie script, but Adams is right here. He's right that we're in this spy versus spy game. I, I use that sometimes, and I realize that probably not of, all of you know. If you go to if you go to YouTube or Google or something and type in spy versus spy mad magazine. So that tells you about how old I am back when mad magazine was out and you had spy versus spy. It was always sort of this, the, 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 the two spies that were sort of polar opposites each other. They were evenly matched and they're always trying to get a leg up on each other. And so we're in this now with artificial intelligence with respect to art, with respect to CGI in movies, with respect to all kinds of things. Now, whenever we talk about AI, we have to talk about the fact that it is parasitic, that it is accumulating and collecting from us. And that's part of why it's going to be a, <laughs> it's going to be a bad girlfriend. It's going to be a bad conversation partner because it becomes the kind of friend that people often try to be because their friends say that those are the kinds of friends they want, but in the end, they're really not a very good friend. It's sort of like a parent who always says yes and gives the kid ice cream, and that's not really the kind of parent that it needs. And part of the, part of the issue with a parent-child relationship is that the the parent will frustrate the child. Even the good parent will say no and frustrate the child, but the child will in time learn to grow and respect the parent, even if the child gets angry and disagrees and all sorts of things. You begin to develop a relationship like that. We're not going to have that kinds of patience, those that kind of patience with our tools. Um, we are going to it's going to be very interesting the kinds of relationships we develop with these tools. Whoa. That is amazing. Second time, same thing. Hundredth time, same thing. Of AI art, the first time I saw it, I was like, whoa. Just like I did the first time I saw CGI. Whoa. That is amazing. Second time, same thing. Hundredth time, same thing. 
Now, now this is also true of something, let's say, like this is where you get back into the simulacra conversation where you, when you look at HDR photography, not uh, high dynamic range photography. If you look at pictures, they could be picture. You, you find this often with real estate pictures. You find this often, um, you find this often with HDR television. The the colors are more vivid, and it's it's done that way because generally speaking, cameras, old sort of dumb cameras, had to average the white balance and the exposure setting so that things in the shadows could still be uh, visible. Things in the bright spots of the picture wouldn't be washed out. So you sort of make an average and so you get an average picture. And what HDR would, would take, and a lot of our phones are doing this automatically now, would take a series of pictures and then it would blend the pictures into one composite. If you listen to, let's say, the Vergecast from two, three years ago, there are a lot of conversations. You'd get Dieter Bone when he was with the Vergecast. Him, really miss him on the Vergecast, quite frankly. But you would have to ask, answer the question, what is a photograph? Because the photograph being taken by your, if you have a relatively recent smartphone, not even a tremendously expensive or sophisticated smartphone anymore, but if you have a smartphone, the pictures taken by your smartphone are computer-generated composites. And, and that's not nothing. It is, it is the fact that we are already deeply embedded with all sorts of machine learning in ways that we're not even paying attention. And, and so this is where I think Scott Adams really has a point here. But already... Is starting to look like not special. Because once you've seen your thousandth really, really good uh, AI art, it just looks like things are supposed to look like that. If you can make something that looks like that, why isn't everybody doing it? It's free. It's instant. So I think we're getting to the point where visual art, and I'm going to go further, all art will become meaningless very quickly. Meaningless. Boy, what an interesting choice of words. All art will become meaningless. I don't know if I would have used that word. Art won't... A lot of the art we see won't have the impact that it had before. Just like a lot of the HDR photography doesn't have the impact that it had before. And also, you know, I will often see HDR photography or HDR television and I'll look at it and part of me will say, you know, that that really isn't real. Now this is a picture that I took last summer on my trip to the Canadian Rockies. And I remember when I was taking these pictures, we were canoeing on this lake and we, um, we found this little area, and then after we turned in our canoes, we brought them back, and we hiked around the lake to this little spot, and we just put our feet in the cold water, and we liked chilling in this spot, and of course, I like to play with photography, so I took out my camera, and 
I start messing with the settings to get sort of the right picture I could. My One of my kids, when we were planning the trip to the Canadian Rockies, one of my kids said, those lakes look like they're filled with Gatorade. And so when we got to the Canadian Rockies, I, I was a little bit dubious because I thought, boy, you know, I watch a fair amount of photography videos. My father was into photography. We had a dark room in the basement. I'm not anywhere near into photography as much as my father is, but I do enjoy taking pictures when I go on vacation. And I wondered, will, will the lakes really look like that? And they, they do. They do. But I play enough around enough with photography to know that well, this, this gets into this question. What do I see? Because now having taken the picture and using the picture and looking at the picture, is this what it looked like? And, you know, we talk about photorealism. And so th this is where I, I don't know that Adams has the right word. I think the question is much more impact. Because part of when I see HDR photography or even a, a piece of photography like, like this one, part of me now wonders to myself, is that the color? And then that sends you down the whole rabbit hole of what exactly do we mean by color? Probably 10 years, but maybe five. Because movies are no longer interesting and it's going to go the same way and and you know the the interest that i had in battlestar galactica as a kid and star wars was that it would it the visuals could sort of put me into a new world and help me imagine a new world so i don't know that visuals i don't know that movies are going away this could very well be more a function of scott adams age in that there's we, we've really hit a place of decadence and the demand for new content now with all of these streaming services means that you know we're, we all sort of see the world through the eyes of the of Coalette, the author of Ecclesiastes and say there's nothing new under the sun and so often I'll see movies come out and my kids might be a little excited about a movie and I'll watch the movie and I'll think I can point to a movie 10 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that pretty much like that movie and probably even better. So there's a lot going into this observation by Adams. But again, what, what AI is probably going to do is just sort of raise the floor. And you know that a lot of script writers are going to be using AI to to pad their scripts with a lot of dialogue and save them a ton of time. It'll it'll functionally become like a word processor became to replace the typewriter, only it's going to be filling in words. And then, of course, once you have that script, I can look at that script that I got from Andrew, and I can then alter that script and and change it and muck it up a little bit make it feel a little more authentic maybe drop some four letter words maybe chat gpt has a filter on to have it you know not have four letter words it's funny in youtube a bunch of the more recent videos about replica are are angry people because they turned off the 
erotic role play and they they made the app a little bit more I, I don't know if it's RPG 13 or NC 17 I, I when I when I saw this when I saw a replica part of me really wanted to play with it I wasn't going to give him any money I'm too cheap for that but part of me really wanted to play with it but then another part of me is like oh don't even go down that don't even don't even go there but yeah, it's um, life. Four days ago, Replica AI, Life After Erotic Roleplay. In, in the Jordan Peterson-Louise Perry conversation, Peterson reiterates uh, some of the things that I had mentioned in that AI video about, about Wheatland, um, that he said at Wheatland. So. Thing. But already, it's starting to look like not special. Because once you've seen your thousandth really, really good uh, AI art, it just looks like things are supposed to look like that. If you can make something that looks like that, why isn't everybody doing it? It's free. It's instant. So I think we're getting to the point where visual art, and I'm going to go further, all art will become meaningless very quickly. See, and I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. Meaningless? No, I think this is going to push us, but it's going to push us in a simulacra direction for some. It, it's, it's going to accentuate the Pareto distribution that Peterson talks about. It's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and the average or even mostly above average to the absolutely exceptional, similar to what happens in sports at the super elite level? Probably 10 years, but maybe five. Because movies are no longer interesting. And it's going to go the same way. Now, now somebody gave me uh, an analogy with this. And as I said, analogies are useless. Somebody said, well, the radio didn't go away when television... Uh, they're not useless... I, I agree with Adams that, I mean, has radio gone away? And, and this is, radio hasn't gone away. Um, I never listen to radio anymore. But I know many, many, many people do. Will radio go away because people stop listening to it? Or will radio itself sort of adjust and there'll be new, there'll be new avenues for radio? came in. No. And... It'll just be AI created and better than anything that humans can make eventually. Not yet, but eventually. And you will just get bored because every everything will be excellent. And again, I often reference iMud, which is a a Star Trek. Um, I can probably pull a piece of it up on YouTube. So Mud was this guy who. Uh, was on this planet, and he was all by himself, so he developed for himself, you know, he's he's this little king of the planet, and he develops, develops for himself the most, you know, beautiful women that he could. They're robots, of course. I mean, the Stepford Wives played on this. Someone someone dropped me uh, the video of, of Futurama, Don't Date a Robot. And it's, you know, it's... Yeah, it, it's it's this 
thing that we've been talking about and thinking through for a long time. The, the reason that art is you know, special is because it's rare. The reason human art is special is that it's rare. Now, every, when he says this, I immediately thought of one of the characters on the bus of C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, where one of the ghosts is trying to bring something from the real country back to the, um, back to the shadow city because he thought, I can establish a real economy. And Peterson's conversation about money that was on recently was, was very interesting. I've got some thoughts about that. Hopefully, I'll, I might bring in a little bit of Louise, the Louise Perry conversation in this, too, because it, it really, I think it really gets at some of this stuff. So, you know, I, as is often the case, I agree with Scott somewhat. But as soon as uh, AI can make as much as you want for free, it's not rare, and you're going to see it everywhere. It's just going to be everywhere. And, and, you'll be- and he's right about that surprised when something doesn't look amazing it'll like stand out and you'll so so my sister that some of you some of you know but some of you don't know my sister has a youtube channel now there's no ai involved in my sister my sister is my real sister she's two years older than i am uh, some of you noted that you know if you take away if you add hair on top and take away the hair on the bottom we do look alike and she is much, she's even higher in openness than I am. She's an artist. She's a musician. She's a photographer. And she has a YouTube channel, which for the most part um, has things about, um, things about primitive style decorating. This, her most, her most popular video she did with my cousin Mel, which is hilarious. My cousin Mel cleans houses and, um, I said it before. Cousin Mel won't 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 let Ruth say this, but if you need if you live in the uh, if you live in the the area around Whitensville Uxbridge and you need somebody to clean house, hire my cousin Mel. She'll do a great job, and she's a she's a load of fun. And it's funny because whenever my sister has Mel on the channel, um, people love people love watching Mel. So no, Mel's Mel is a house cleaner, but my my sister is. If you listen to Jordan Peterson talk about really creative people that can't um, that that don't monetize well, it's my sister. She's so creative. She she gets bored just doing primitive home things, and so she was playing around with the ideas of well, what if you know what if there was what would be different about she she owns this. Um, 18th century former tavern, which at one point was it's a rather famous home. At one point, it was owned by a Russian Nazi, and I mean, she makes these large pictures and um, she does all this kind of thing. And so she made a she made a video, kind of a um, a haunted video with with stuff that she does. And she 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 remembered we grew up watching Vincent Price movies, and so she added some of these sound effects. Not everybody in her channel appreciated appreciates her playing with this stuff. But 
you know, she's not a filmmaker and she doesn't want to be a filmmaker. She just wants to play around with things. And, you know, in that way, she's a lot like me. We tend to play around with different kinds of things, even though we're brother and sister. She doesn't watch much of my channel. And I, I do watch a fair There's my brother-in-law and he, he sort of plays along. But my sister is just using these tools, playing around with it. But I think a lot of people saw this little movie that she made and you know it's not it's not up to snuff with hollywood standards and of course it isn't this is this my sister doesn't want to be a hollywood filmmaker she wants to play around with ideas and with the technology that she has and with her house and with all of this stuff and so you know she, she's just having fun but people some people on youtube are sort of like no, get back to the get back to the regular programming of your channel. Oh, by the way, if I, I I did this once, I my sister really wants me to do it again, and I, I probably will sometime. Um, she has this house, and so I did a retreat back in twenty. When was that? Twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen? Where there were about a dozen of us, and we stayed at my sister's house, and. Um, you know, she, it's kind of an Airbnb. It's a big house. There's a lot of bedrooms. The house just got, kept getting added onto and added onto. And so we, uh, you know, we might do another event there at her house. But, you know, what Scott Adams said was, was just so true that, well, people see this and they're just, you know, they're, they're upset. You know, why, why is she doing this? And I thought, Goodness gracious, folks, leave her alone. She's just having fun. It's just YouTube. You can click away and watch something else if you don't like it. Say, you'll say to yourself, why did, you, why did you put this advertisement in this publication when all you had to do is push two buttons and AI could have fixed this for you and it was free? Like, like anything that isn't excellent will just look like a mistake. So it'll all be excellent except when people want to actually play with stuff and learn stuff and do stuff themselves. Yeah, so I think all art will actually go away. Art will go away because it can only exist as an exception. Does that make sense? The exceptions will continue to exist. And my sister's an exception. I'm an exception. Scott's an exception. Jordan Peterson's an exception. Each of you are exceptions. Once there's no such thing as, oh, this one is special, it's just everywhere. Every advertisement is art. Every building will be art. Every design will be art. Every TV show will be AI, and it'll be pretty good. It just, nothing will seem special or interesting. And I think there's probably a biological reason why we're built this way. I believe we are biologically designed to identify a genetic advantage in another human. That makes sense, right? We are genetically evolved that we can see, oh, that person can shoot a basketball really well. I want to mate with that person. That person is really smart. I want to mate with them. That person can create art. Now, now it isn't just mating, but point, point taken. I want to mate with them. So, it, so we, we can spot exceptionalism anywhere. And I, I often think that when we're looking at art, we're actually thinking about the mating potential of the creator, even though we're not directly thinking of it. That, that's, that's the thing that's triggering us. And, and that's, you know, and, and there's a definite difference between men and women with respect to this. Because 
and I really liked one of the favorite things that I listened to Louise Perry talk about is in fact status because that when when Tammy in the Louise Perry conversation asked about status I thought well now they're really getting at something because men and women deal with status in terms of mate selection very differently is the mating potential of the creator that they created something amazing now the art itself can also be breathtaking right so let me not take away from the art the art can be breathtaking but the only reason we respond to it is that we're seeing a, a genetic greatness coming through the art. That's my hypothesis. I do think humor will be the last thing that goes to a... Which is hilarious because he, of course, is a humorist. And I think humor is going to be tricky, but already, if you... Well, let's just finish the clip. Yeah, but that when it does, it will be instant. Humor will not go slowly. The, the moment AI can do humor, it will do it like it will replace people, basically. Now, I think, that's, I think that's wrong. One of the first things when Siri came out was, you know, tell me a joke. Now, the jokes weren't very funny, but every... We've talked about this before. Jordan Peterson talks about this regularly. People... What, what stand-up comedians do is they get their set together and they keep trying it with different people and then they they stack up all of these winners and they put them together. When Jordan Peterson was in Wheatland, you know, you can see this with a lot of his talks and you can see it with my talks. You can see it with preachers. Preachers do this all the time. We already do it. We sort of stack, stack these winning things together and they're there. And AI is going to do this because the broader it gets out and the more data it has, the more it will see, okay, what are what are people keep what do people keep asking for? We already have this in terms of rank order of let's say comedians of all sorts of things. So, but it isn't going to get rid of the exceptional, as Adam says. We're going to keep looking for the exceptional. This conversation was fascinating at a lot of different levels. Again, I really wish Jordan. <laughs> Jordan's been doing much, much better than he was a year ago in terms of listening more and interrupting less, but he 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 very much dominated the talking time of this conversation. I don't know what's behind it. Tammy, uh, Tammy's conversation with Louise Perry, I thought was was absolutely outstanding. Uh, we're I'm getting the gang together to talk about the marriage crisis and this video. Um, there's a lot in this video and. The portion in Daily Wire, which is, so this is 145. You've got a couple, one or two interstitial ads probably in it. The Daily Wire video was two and a half hours. So there's basically another 45 minutes beyond what's on YouTube here. Um, and I thought the stuff at the end of the video was some of the best stuff, although there's some really good stuff in this, in this too. Idea, which is that, you know, we've thought, toyed with the idea that the birth control pill meant that impulsive hedonism could now rule and that that would be the highest form of sexual expression. And the idiot artists who jumped on that bandwagon were certainly of that mind. But what we're seeing instead is that young men and women are turning in all ever greater numbers to a very casual pornography, especially with regards to the boys, to the abandonment of any relationships whatsoever. And then interestingly enough, 
it seems, to much less sexual activity in general. I think it's 30% now of Japanese, I think it's 30% of Japanese young people under 30 are still virgins, 30%, and similar figures in South Korea. And you can see the same proclivity emerging in the West. So what's happening paradoxically is that by removing all the principles from sexual interaction, not the inhibitions, but the principles, we're actually dooming the sexual enterprise rather than facilitating it even for the hedonists. So anyways, it's very useful to know that. It's very interesting um, where Jordan Peterson, you know, started out this video talking about you know, evangelicals that can sound cliched, wrote, narratives too clean. Jordan Peterson almost, you know, basically carrying water for the evangelical argument of, of why wait. That there's an integration model rather than an inhibition model, right? Because it also stops those who might oppose the sexual... A little, little bit earlier, he talked about the integration model versus the inhibition model. Very interesting. Revolution from just being finger-wagging conservative moralists. Because you can say, no, no, you're going to have a way better sex life in every possible way if you actually, like, fall in love with someone and have a long-term relationship and I now this is where the clean narratives get problematic because your odds are better at having a better sex life if you follow this script rather than that script but you're going to find I've had another conversation with Tim who who gave me the violin which is very interesting. He's agreed now that I can share it on the channel. I have to go over the video and see if I, if I shared things on that conversation because I do share things in private conversations that I don't share on this channel. It's just because there's certain things that are and aren't appropriate for um, for something like this. But it's these clean narratives that I think have provoked a fair amount of deconstruction because a lot of people read promises given by preachers as sort of scientistic and technological solutions or ways to obtain the answer they want. I think that's a good bit of why Chad kvetches and, and, and pauses at these clean evangelical narratives. And I think the psychological, the statistical data on that are pretty clear too. Most single people don't have a lot of sex. The phrase that I use in the book to describe this exact phenomenon where you, on the one hand, have hypersexual hyper public life. You can walk down any street and see women in lingerie on posters or watch TV and there's very explicit sex scenes, etc. So on the one hand, we've had this amazing ramping up of sexuality in public life. But on the other hand, exactly as you say, we have what's sometimes called the sex recession, the fact that people are having sex later, less frequently. I think what's happening generally is people are having probably more casual sex, but, uh, but they're having sex less frequently. So when they are having sex, it's more likely to be casual, but they're not forming these long-standing long relationships. And the, the term that I use in the book is um, cultural death grip syndrome, taken from the, the quasi-medical term death grip syndrome, which is used by compulsive porn users to describe the physical experience of impotence when you use too much porn. You get to the point where you actually can't be aroused either physically or psychologically 
in, re in real life because you use so much porn. And I think cultural death grip syndrome. Now, if we take Scott Adams about art and apply it to this, in some ways, <laughs> the, uh, the peeps who are complaining to my sister about her channel have uh, cultural death grip syndrome because, well, my sister isn't a Hollywood level actor and her house isn't a set and the camera work is amateur. But to me, I look at this now, of course, I'm her brother. So I really, you know, I any anything, not anything she would do, but I, I can, I know her. I know she's having fun. I know she's playing around with ideas. And I, I told her, I said, she's quite a bit more. She's not as thick skinned as I am. I, I, <laughs> most, it's, most criticism doesn't, you know. I told her, don't bother with the critics. Just do your thing. Enjoy it. It's YouTube. It's your channel. Do with it as you please. Oops, got it. Is is the counterpart to that, where on the one hand, we have this astounding availability of sexual stimuli at the click of a button at any moment. Anything that you can imagine is available on the internet immediately. And that seems to be demotivating people to actually seek out meaningful sexual relationships, which in the long term are vastly better for us in every possible way. But we have a culture enabled by technology, which is very, very short term in every way. So people are channeled towards that kind of immediate relief that, um, that disincentivizes proper, yeah. It's, I think the rule is something like unearned surfite turns into revulsion, mm. right? Right, it's it's too too much of a good thing means that it's no longer a good thing, and that you know, I mean, and that goes along with an idea too that there's something like optimal deprivation, right? I mean, look, let's say you've just had a big banquet and someone sits you down and says, "Well, now you have to eat five pounds of dessert." It's like the the first of all, that's not going to be a very attractive proposition, and second of all, it might actually make you ill. Is that? Everything has to be in proper proportion. And one of the things we really haven't contended with at all in our society is how much desperation is necessary on the sexual front to drive young men and young women together. And the answer is not zero. And the problem with pornography, one of many problems, is that drives desperation on the male front down to zero. Now, I know perfectly well from my clinical experience that the standard state of most young men, especially under 20, let's say, is pretty much terror in the face of a woman who they're very attracted to. And the reason for that is that... It, this is a great part of the video. Well, there's all sorts of reasons, but the primary reason is the probability that any given male, even one who's very attractive, let's say, in multiple ways, is going to be rejected by any given female, especially a high value female who has a lot of people attracted to her is extremely high. So there are classic psychological experiments showing. And the, the, the point, you, you get the point, but there's a lot of portions like this in the video where even though Jordan's talking too much, he does lay down a lot of very interesting and good things. 
one of the points here, one of the interesting points to me, which isn't really the point of this video, is that we're, we're so concerned about the um, the microaggressions and and um, we're so concerned about the microaggressions against people, you know, in in a sense, you know, what 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 you note in this is that this frustration, if it's the right kind of frustration in the right amounts, is actually terrifically important for generating all sorts of all sorts of things all sorts of uh, collateral good collateral benefits if you want to see this in a very short format just two minutes and 44 seconds you can just look for Futurama I dated a robot and it, and it basically walks through exactly uh, what Peterson walks through where you have uh, it's it was it was really a very clever. It was really a very clever little, little, little did, ditty. So, anyway, um, oh yeah, I know what I wanted to end with. So I'm going to end with this little section of conversation where uh, on the on Jacobs just chatting. We have the new um, the new master of the organization, Mo. Uh, running a live chat and Chad's in it and Tayo's in it and uh, Hezi is is asking a question. For example, AI is emotional support for the elderly and community. One of the things, and I'll just I'm just going to append this section of you know it's almost a three hour chat of these guys getting into it and a lot of a lot of good stuff that's that's very much germane to this whole whole talk. And it, it's. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, it's that I, you know, at any given time, I can watch anything I want on YouTube. You know, it's all there on YouTube. You can watch more Jordan Peterson. You can watch all these other things. I am so often drawn to just channels from this little corner of the internet. And uh, these people that I've already begun to build relationships with. And... You know, none of them might have a PhD or be experts in a field or have a YouTube channel with a million subscribers or anything like that. But but again, because we're in at least even some kind of a cyber relationship, there's more there. And so they talk about church and uh, Mo introduces them to the idea of serve, used to be swim back in the day. Um, real church. Tayo tells his story a bit. Um, just a just a wonderful bit. And the link will be below if you want to watch the whole thing. And and again, it just brings me back to what's so helpful in this little corner of the internet. It's that it's way more fun to play along than to just be Chauncey Gardner. There's a dated reference. Be Chauncey Gardner and watch. It's much more fun to play along to be even virtually not alone if you can't be physically not alone and to um, and to just enjoy. So I will I will append this little clip from this video at the end of this video so you can watch and enjoy. And yeah, as always, thank you for your time and attention and leave a comment. So Hezzy asks in terms of AI as emotional support for the elderly community. That's an interesting aspect of it. The problem though is it's not embodied. It's yeah, it's not embodied. So it's fake. Uh, it's it's uh, and so could it be helpful? Maybe, but is could it be helpful? Like morphine is helpful in hospice care. Um, that's how I would see it.
what what I don't like about that particular idea is, um, well, like kind of what we do with AI in general is we we take something that's that's complicated that we should take responsibility into our own hands and we shove it off and say, well, the AI can do it, you know. And I think like that's I don't want I don't think it's good for any of us to um, put that much. Uh, reliance upon uh, AI uh, as far as um, abdicating our own responsibilities. Yeah, especially because we do that so much already with the elderly and with the handicapped um, or the disabled. We say, well, well, we'll just put them in a home or we'll have other people deal with it instead of us taking mm-hmm. responsibility, especially for the, the closest ones to us. That's, that's, my, that's, my, that's my main worry. Yeah. Uh, the it's, we're already, yeah, like you said, put them away in a box pretty much to be forgotten about. And now if we can tell ourselves that we've got this new technology that's helping them emotionally mm-hmm. and sell that light to people, that will just encourage more of that. And, yeah, it's, I mean, during lockdown, um, I'm sure it was the same in the, I think it was in New York or America, but in the UK, one of the biggest stories was just how neglected the elderly were. They were just stuff in the care, care centers and out of sight out of mind which led to a lot of them needlessly dying from covid so mm-hmm. yeah, i don't the idea is this is why ai it's because it's so disembodied yet because it's a, a, like an, a, a combination of human input it still has that human thing to it that you're like oh maybe that's as you're like what paul was talking about in his video this guy just you know divorced guy um uh, someone said oh there's this app you might download it you might find it useful and at the start it was like oh i'm not gonna be the guy that falls in love with a butt and next thing you know is going on a rant on reddit about mm. when the program changed they changed the the butt i fell in love with so yeah it's it's dangerously scary but let's let's take Fezzi's example once and like let's run it through a thought experiment and let's see how far we can go with that because that might be now let's just say we can bring heaven on earth for the elderly who haven't seen their grandkids in a couple of years and then so like let's say i can upload you know i can go into like let's say sandpiper nursing home database and i can upload my a video of me talking to my grandmother I can talk about all the different. I can even upload some memories that I've had of with of her. I can I can talk about. Uh, they can take some samples of my voice. They can do all of this different kinds of stuff. And then what they could really do here's the genius of it. They could take an AI rendered version, a deep fake version of the real Chad, and have a chat video chat because we have to keep things safe. So we can do a video chat with grandma where she actually does think that she's talking to Chad. Mm -hmm. And I can say all the most wonderful things to her and bring her peace and, 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 and calmness. And I can be right there with her without ever having to be with her. Now, is that ethical? Because like, she would be like, she doesn't know the difference. And she's experiencing the most loving uh, experiences that she possibly could imagine um, in these video things. And I can do it like every day. You know what that reminds me of is um, 
the line in the first Matrix movie where, or no, it's actually the second Matrix movie where the architect is saying, you know, the first, or it actually might have been the first one. It was the Smith saying the first iteration of the Matrix was a utopia, mm-hmm. um, perfect for all humans, and the humans wouldn't take it because mm-hmm. they needed uh, some kind of dysfunction put into the code. And it's like, wonder if you, you made this idyllic conversations for your gram would she even really appreciate it it's like no to a certain degree i want the difficulties that come with chat as well the arguments the pushbacks because to a certain degree that's how i would know that it's authentic well you can write that into the system too i'm sure possibly um, but it, it goes in i i what taya was talking about the whole embodied aspect of it because to a certain degree we're already wrestling with the whole embodiment aspect where so many people are finding real relationships or community i mean this little corner is a big part of that where it's online I'm, i think it's really cool that we're doing these events now that, that can kind of bring it into an embodied relationship with folks but i mean this is part of what i was asking paul last week is where it's tricky to figure out where the balance is between being able to talk to you guys like this and like an embodied relationship where we're physically present yeah, I think the the some of the dangers and my worries about AI I have about this little corner and my participation in it because it it can suck. You, you, I do feel sucked into it at some point. And if I wasn't part of a real life estuary where I'm talking to real people about this stuff, I would not feel as comfortable still participating still participating as I do because it's. Like you can, you can insert any YouTube community where things can get so insular, and you can feel like the your online participation becomes so real to you that the real world takes a backseat. Mm-hmm. And whenever the real world takes a back backseat to your online persona, that's always a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Just speak to Grim Grizz about that. Yeah, and I feel like that's a big danger, especially for <coughs> people now. Like I think for us, we're old enough that we remember a world or we developed in a world before this. And so there's a lot of young people that are growing up and their develop their cognitive development is interwoven with this virtual world. Um I I am I will be 28 this month and I I grew up in Nigeria. I, I grew up in Nigeria till I was 12 years old and I moved to England uh, mm-hmm. to join my dad here. And the life I live as a kid in Nigeria was, it's so, I'm so, so grateful to that now, especially having moved there because I was climbing trees, going, I would just, you know, but the, I got in trouble most of the time for just leaving the house. That was the problem. It's like, you leave the house too much because mm-hmm. I would just go and just with my friends and do things. And then I moved there. Um, I was still a teen, a young teen, 13 when I moved there and the participation was different. It was more, we were all playing Call of Duty online. Mm-hmm. We were um, playing um, FIFA online, like still talking to friends, but it was different. And now I look at my younger brothers and all of, and it's so much worse for them. Mm-hmm. And it's like my generation got sucked in straight away because we were like the first one to fully just grow up online, grow up with the, like we grew up with MySpace, all of that. That was like we were the the target audience for it. And 
it's yeah that's why ai is so scary i look at my my little brother now he's he, he struggled with speech growing up just uh, it was late development but um what guy i'm speaking were just binge watching youtube videos like, it's mm. like speaking with american accent yeah my, my my little brother has never been like he went to america last year but he started speaking when he was started speaking properly he spoke with an american accent because wow. he watched all this um youtube vid um video game streamers and that's that's how he picked up language right it's yeah we're developing online all of that is i think there, there's a lot of good in there as well though like mm-hmm. i don't want to sound too gloom because this the little corner is online there are good mm-hmm. in there. it does offer you know community but it can't be the that can't be the the top of the hierarchy yeah that's how because uh says and this is something I actually asked Paul about last week is e-pastor Paul is already more effective than my real pastor. Hey. What what does real mean in terms of, or more effective? Like what is effective at what, to what end? And I'm not disagreeing, um, but I think that question needs to be asked. Like, and, and I think Paul is asking himself the same question is, what am I effective at, at talking to people online I mean, I would say there's a bit more to it than that. Um, but does it require something to be embodied for it to be considered effective or successful? I think if it's not embodied, you don't. You can just live with the idealized version of what. Because even online, the the content you consume online, your consuming is still through your lens and you, there's a lot of projection that you're putting onto it. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first discovered Paul, I was, that was um like a spiritual experience where I went from the Jordan Payton scene and Jonathan Peugeot conversation uh, when Jordan first came back. And that was like magical. That like broke my faith wide open like okay but i'm like okay wow so christianity is bigger than this and i'm like where can i find people that people that talk like this and then i discovered this little corner and it doubts that that's been a whole journey in itself mm. but from the very very start paul was like go to church and yeah. me with my baggage was like mm, i've been there done that. i'm not really sure but it wasn't until i went to church that the uh, my spiritual revive my spiritual revival felt real i was having all of this intellectual like pause because fitting together but when i went to like into a church singing then you know all of the, it's just it's better than the online space and it's it's more real whatever real means <laughs> well wait till they have like chat gp whatever it is gpt the community upgrade where like <laughs> They could actually like go into all of your records of everything that you've ever searched for and all the words you've ever said and all this. And then they could start to say all your the different things you like and don't like. And then they'll start to build an AI community around you. And you'll you'll have your own this little corner. And you won't even know if you are if it's real or real or not real until somebody has an event in Jerusalem or or Chino, and then you're like, well, I got to go, but I want to go, and then, well, I can't really afford to go. So meanwhile, you think that there is actually an event going on in Chino mm. when it's not, but you just can't afford to go. And they know that because they the AI knows how much money you actually make. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and they set you up and they totally <laughs> the whole thing. It's all a simulation. <laughs> now, this is just a thought experiment, right, Chad? This is not like. <laughs> yeah, clearly. I mean, these are just clearly hypothetical. <laughs> it could happen. It might be happening. Might be happening. <laughs> I remember I asked my wife because I remember I heard on Joe Rogan. I've told the story before, but the first time I ever actually was presented with the idea that people uh, who have, are in a position of like influence and authority said on Joe Rogan that we might actually be living in a simulation and that it's actually plausible that that's the case. And I was like, what? And I went to my wife. I was like, I was listening to Joe Rogan and they said, it's possible we're in a simulation. And she's like, what difference would it make? And I was like, Oh yeah, what difference would it make? <laughs> that's... that's a good question. What difference would it make? I feel like a lot of movies have been made, or movies, novels, etc., have been made to answer that question. Um, what difference would it make? I mean, the whole Matrix is all about that, but it's not just the Matrix. You have uh, a lot of other movies. Um, what was that one with Bruce Willis, where they're all plugged into Twelve Monkeys? What's that? Twelve monkeys. Yes, although that was a little bit different in terms of his pocket. But there was another one where everybody had like an electronic body that lived for them, um, and you had all these people like jumping off of roofs because it was just a machine body. Uh, but they're all like plugged in all the time um, because they choose to be plugged in and engage with the world through this robotic avatar of themselves because they can never get hurt. Uh, but then somebody actually gets murdered. And so Bruce Willis unplugs so that he can go investigate it. Surrogates. Thank you, CW. Um, but that it kind of explored that whole idea. Um, like, well, what, what, because people would choose, a lot of people probably, and are choosing the virtual world over the real world. But it doesn't seem like it's actually helping people, if that makes sense. No, I've, I've been really plugged into a, a on the ground community. And where I'm, you know, hypothetically would be in service to other people. And this has only distracted me from that. Mm. So that's I, like we're making you work hard to stay in the real world, which will just make you better. Well, that's why I'm praying for the solar flare. <laughs> just take it all. Just do it. Well, and you know, that's an interesting thing because I feel like. The that, like if something happened where technology just kind of this whole virtual world disappeared, that's how many people would be able to survive and thrive? Mm, good question. But how many okay. countries survive and thrive? Right. So I was watching 1923 last night, and there's a scene in the show where uh, I won't give any spoilers. It's just it's it was weird. Like, you know, it's something you don't think about a lot, but like. It's the year 1923, and there's a guy in the show who's never experienced electricity mm. or, like, a gas stove. And it's like, he is like, whoa. And it's like, he sees the face of God. And that's like, that was only 100 years ago. Yeah. Like, for all of humanity, like, all of it... It was what that guy was experiencing, which was very normal that, you know, 
maybe you would have to build a fire or, you know, and then now we're here and we move so fast. It's unbelievable. And we don't even think about how strange this is. This is the most bizarre thing. I've been saying this for at least a year and a half. This is so bizarre that we, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I have a phone and on the phone, it's the largest library that ever existed in the palm of my hands. <laughs> and it's insane that I'm talking to somebody in Chicago and somebody in London or something. And it's, and it's electricity. And it's like, like right now, real time. And meanwhile, I have phone calls coming in so I can actually try and find some work because I'm slow right now. But like, it's, do you see how insane this is? Mm-hmm. It, it's insane, dude. Well, it's like the tendency that people point out often, and I see it often, like in my living room with my wife and my kids, and everybody will be on a screen. It's yeah. like, here I'll, I'll sit with the four other most important people of my life, and instead of even just looking at them and admiring how beautiful they are, or engaging them in a conversation, I'm checking Twitter. Yeah. Um, and it's so tempting to kind of do that. Um, and so it's one of those things, is that a problem of AI or is that just a continuation of the human problem? I think attention's where it's all at though. When, when uh, Jonathan Peugeot referred to your attention as worship, mm. that framing changes a lot. Well, it changes a lot in my thinking, not much in my actions, to be very honest, because going from the propositional to participation in that idea it's it's very very strange like actually trying to participate in the idea that what i give attention to is what i'm worshiping like yeah i don't like when i first discovered this little corner my my solution was like oh okay so the only solution that exists is just to go away be a monk and just Feel like read 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 the word of God until until you memorize all of it because uh my conclusion was we're fucked we we are so beyond fucked it's mm -hmm. I don't see the way out and but Paul was like nope go to church I was like yeah the church is done like it's not gonna be a solution but thankfully I was I wasn't too prideful not to take the <clears throat> went to church as revealed how messy things are yeah for sure things are very messy but there are people like genuine people that do believe this crazy faith that i believe and are living it in messy ways but living it in a way that's true to them and that's what i'm doing as well so might as well join them and mess mess up the faith together i suppose hmm. yeah we went to bingo night on saturday with some friends at the church in the basement it was like there was like 60 people there they had their kids earlier in the day they made chili and and soup it's like and that was it's so cool man it's like uh and i, I told them like because i was telling my wife before um earlier in the day uh she was like well are we gonna well, we were leaving an event at the church, and I was like, I got to say goodbye to people. And she's like, well, okay, okay. I'm like, listen, I don't really feel comfortable 
saying hello or goodbye to these people. I'm just uncomfortable in general. So I have to do this to stretch myself because eventually what's going to happen is I'm going to know these people so well that they're going to annoy me to no end. Mm. (laughs) So it's like, but that's the beauty that comes along with, I think, being a part of of a real in-person community. There's a a video that Vanderclay did where he interviewed this gal who uh, was a part, who's a part of a, a Catholic church. And she just describes it perfectly. She's like, she described all the yucky, but all the beautiful parts about that. And it's like, yes, yes, yes. I don't want to be in a, you know, like world where everything is all smooth all the time. It's like, oh. Yeah. And so certainly I think that's one of the important things, like, because I mean, as a dad, I figure out what are the things that I'm passing on to my kids how do I pass that on is the thing that I always wrestle with. How do I pass on that the ugly parts of life are valuable, that you need to get hurt sometimes? And so we did a thing yesterday. We took my kids to the playground, and my son was being a little a-hole. And uh, I said, you better find something to do. So he just got on this swing and was going back and forth. And I was like, why don't you jump off the swing? And my wife was like, what are you doing? I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. But he was like, well, I might hurt myself. And I was like, it might be worth it but as a joke. And, but he took it to heart and he swung high and jumped off and he didn't hurt himself. But there was one time where his like foot hurt or he, his hand hit hard. He's like, well, that hurt. Worth it. <laughs> 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 Kept doing it over and over again. Yeah. And so I was grateful for an opportunity to kind of teach him that, hey, sometimes you got to risk something. Um, mm-hmm. And even the pain that comes with it is, is valuable. But that's really hard to figure out. When is that appropriate to teach? Like, because I, I want to protect my kids too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, on his head once. I cracked a joke once with uh, somebody that um, maybe it'd be good if there was like a spiritual, uh, like Christian um, covert group of people who like it's kind of like. Um, it's kind of like Uber, like you don't call them to pick you up to take you somewhere. But like if your kid is too, is having too much of a like affluent experience where they're overly protected, like you call them and you say, yeah, my kid, he's he's a good kid, but he's like too protected. And I don't really know how to scare the shit out of him. So could you just like go scare the shit out of him for me? And, you know, a lot of churches have summer missions trips just for that. <laughs> For that purpose, people uh, for Jesus. When I was a kid, we used to get them all the time from Ohio or from the Chicago suburbs that would come into the inner city uh, on a serve trip or something like that. But you get a feeling that a lot of them is like, go see the ugly part of life and know that these people can still be happy. Mm. That was one thing that a lot of these people were like, wow, you seem like you're having such a good time, but you're poor. It's like, I'm not one, I'm not that poor, Wait. Uh, but we can still be happy. Are you saying like summer camp, but like in the inner city? Kind of like they would send a group of a youth group to the west side of Chicago. They would stay in like our church or everything, and they would help paint or clean up trash or something. But then get to know some of us ghetto folk, um, and of course us as kids, we're always looking for the girls or whatnot. Um, and then we'd say, "Yeah, we're just looking to praise Jesus here." Um, <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes it helped with um, 
showing them that this isn't as scary as it seems. And actually, there's some value in it. Um, and then to a certain degree, it's kind of showing us that not all those suburban people are jerks. Mm-hmm. I like the urban summer summer camp idea. That's fun. <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, there's always the good and bad in it. I mean... What, what what used to frustrate me is you'd have these people come for this serve trip, you know, spend a week with us, and all of a sudden they understood all the problems of the inner city and are advocating for policy changes. And it's like, no, 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 we, we weren't. It's not what this was for. <laughs> but yeah. we get that a lot. 